0: I'm Timothy. I teach and write about apologetics, and I was once almost tackled by a crowd of Secret Service agents in New Orleans when I accidentally walked into the middle of Vice President Joe Biden's motorcade. And I'm Garrick. As a child, I
1: would regularly eat an entire bag of Doritos and a block of mozzarella cheese as a
0: meal according to best-selling biblical scholar bart ehrman the new testament gospels were not written by eyewitnesses but by people living much later ehrman goes on to say that sometimes christian apologists say that there are only three options to who jesus was a liar a lunatic or the lord but there could be a fourth option legend and legend is precisely the possibility for which ehrman argues but is it true that the circulation of stories by word of mouth necessarily results in changes that turn testimony into legend. Well, in the book Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, New Testament scholar Richard Bauckham argues that the stories recorded in the New Testament Gospels are based on reliable testimonies that originated with eyewitnesses. And that's what we'll talk about today with New Testament scholar Jonathan Pennington in the first half of the show. And then in the second half, we'll take a look at God's truth in a cover song that was better than the original. Welcome to Three Chords and the Truth, the Apologetics Podcast. I'm Timothy Paul Jones. Each week, my co-host Garrick Bailey and I tackle an issue related to apologetics. Then we go looking for God's truth by reviewing a moment from the history of rock and roll. Thank you for joining us today on Three Chords and the Truth, where we defend the faith, do justice, and dig for truth in rock and roll.
1: I'm Garrick Bailey, and our guest today is Dr. Jonathan Pennington, Dr. Pennington received his PhD at the University of St. Andrews under the supervision of Dr. Richard Bauckham and Dr. Philip Essler. Welcome to the show, Dr. Pennington. Hey, it's great to be here. I have a question for you. The question that I'm wondering is, when driving in your RX-8 on the road, all alone, no one's watching you, what song would come on the radio that would make you play air guitar, bang your head ridiculously, make a fool of yourself for the world to see?
2: Well, it would not be on the radio because I never listen to the radio. I hate the radio. But what I might play myself would be for, it'd be either Mayday Parade or Metallica.
1: Okay, that's good to know. I I still have to check out this Mayday Parade, but I trust you because of your Metallica answer, of course. Dr. Pennington, what exactly is testimony, and why does it matter
2: to Christians? That's a great question. I think we could answer that in a couple different ways. In the first instance, we can talk about in the ancient world that there was a recognition that a lot of people can say a lot of things about what happened, and not everything that everybody says is true or, or trustworthy. And so there was a recognition that you needed some way to help judge what's the most reliable evidence about something that happened, because if you weren't there for an historical event, you're reliant on somebody else telling you. And so in the ancient world, it was already recognized that eyewitness testimony was not perfect by any means, but was a very reliable and helpful source for figuring out what really happened. And, and that's something that kind of changes later. In our modern period, we've become very suspicious of eyewitness testimony. And I think it's because of the kind of judicial or, or law room situation. We've all seen, you know, whatever it is, you know, law and order, or whatever, where the whole idea of testimony is that you're cross-examining the witness and showing that they're not reliable. Well, that's not how ancient people thought. They didn't think that someone who's objective and outside of an event would be more reliable. They tended to think that someone who was there, and maybe even someone who cared about the events, like who was involved and had a vested interest, that that doesn't disqualify somebody from giving reliable testimony. In fact, that enables them to give more reliable testimony because they saw the significance of the events, right? So I would say, again, to kind of sum that up, that in the ancient world, there was a recognition that eyewitness testimony and testimony that came from reliable people really mattered in the trusting of historical events, now to i said there was two ways we can think about this the other is in the modern period among philosophers there has been a recognition in the last 25 30 years that how we know what happened historically has gone through a change throughout history. So in the ancient world, it was recognized that, again, testimony was valuable. In the modern period, there develops in what we call the Enlightenment, a kind of what we often describe as historicism, which recognized that, or argued, I think wrongly, but argued that the work of history was kind of like doing a chemistry experiment. You can do this kind of very rigorous examination, and you can just— easily get to whether something was true or not. Well, that kind of modernist approach to what history is is not really how ancient people thought about what history is. And a lot of philosophers in, in recent decades have recognized that really at the end of the day, how we know things about history, you can't think of it like a chemistry experiment. You have to think about plausibility structures and plausibility of arguments. And a lot of philosophers have come back to the idea of testimony. That's a modern category to mean that at the end of the day, we're all trusting... What someone else has said, none of us can get to the bottom of everything we know, like what's in our toothpaste tube? Well, there's a whole bunch of trust going on that I'm trusting that Colgate or whoever it is really has put in it what they said they're going to. Maybe they didn't, but there's enough plausibility of litigation and reliability of companies and all these other kind of things, the FDA, that I'm trusting that what's in my toothpaste tube is what it says it is, right? Well, in that category of testimony is really helpful as we think about historical events, that we don't just necessarily believe everything that is said that happened, but we can have these reliable, plausible belief systems that are very confidence-inspiring based on recognizing that we eventually have to trust the testimony of someone else.
0: Well, in 2007, Richard Bockham, who oversaw your doctoral dissertation, published a book entitled Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. And when Ben Witherington reviewed the book, he said, there are books that are interesting, there are books that are important, and then there are seminal studies that serve as road markers for the field pointing the way forward. Richard Bockham's Jesus and the Eyewitnesses is in the latter category, to be sure. And I'll admit, it's one of my favorite books, absolutely one of my favorite books that I read multiple times. And in 2017, Dr. Bauckham actually released a new edition that is expanded and corrected. But in this book, according to Richard Bauckham, the Jesus traditions, the content that we find in the New Testament Gospels originated with known and named witnesses that Christians in the first century knew at the time when the Gospels were being written. And the way that Richard Bauckham puts it is that the period between the historical Jesus and the Gospels was spanned not by... anonymous community transmission, but by the continuing presence and testimony of eyewitnesses who remained the authoritative sources of their traditions until their deaths. Now, how should this type of an idea impact and shape the ways that we read the New Testament Gospels? Really glad to hear you've enjoyed
2: the book so much. I, too, have enjoyed it, and along with many, many other scholars, I think we recognize that it's a very significant work. Part of the reason is, and the impact it has on gospel studies, which may not be immediately felt by the regular person sitting in the pews, but it actually does have an effect, and that is that Richard's book there really puts the final death knell in what's called form criticism, which was a, a very important and influential type or way of reading the Gospels, really at the first part of the 20th century. And what form criticism did, it emphasized the opposite of what you just quoted from Richard, is that that the Jesus traditions are all out there floating free and and the church is just kind of taking them and changing them and making them whatever they wanted to be because the church had situations they had to deal with. So if they had some bad guy or some bad group they didn't like, then they would just take a Jewish tradition and change it so that it spoke against them. Well, I think the significance of what Richard shows and argues is that that's just not plausible at all. That's not how Christians thought about their own traditions. It's not how Jesus taught, et cetera, that there's this—and it's not how ancient people, even outside of Christianity, valued testimony. Instead, these stories from Jesus were spreading very quickly, and they got connected with authoritative witnesses like the Twelve Disciples and then other early Apostles. And that they really valued protecting those traditions, especially in an oral and then written environment, and that they were connected to faithful, reliable witnesses. So that's, I think, the biggest impact, is that it really shows that that way in the 20th century of reading the Gospels is primarily unreliable, just isn't a plausible historical reconstruction.
0: Yeah, according to form criticism, the community, the church kind of creates and fabricates all of these stories about Jesus just to respond to and deal with certain things that they are dealing with in the churches. But according to Richard Baucom and what he argues so effectively is that the Christian community was receiving and was formed by testimony that existed prior to the community. And this testimony could be traced back to known eyewitnesses. The community, yes, they formed that content and applied it in ways that responded to their particular experiences and their particular needs, but they didn't fabricate that testimony about Jesus. They received it, and it formed them first.
2: And part of it, too, that an earlier work he did before Jesus and Eyewitnesses is very significant. His own work, and then became an edited volume called The Gospels for All Christians, is really significant, too, because that also goes against this form-critical idea that these individual Christian communities are isolated from each other and just doing their own thing and making up various versions of heterodoxy, etc. And he shows, and other authors show in that book, that in the Greco-Roman first century, there's people traveling all over and dialoguing with each other, and writing letters to each other, and, and the idea that you could have a Mathian or Johannian community that is isolated from all these others just isn't realistic at all, but instead they're constantly influencing each other.
1: If we're talking today about the eyewitnesses of the Gospels, could I ask you, what personally causes you to be confident that Jesus was raised from the dead?
2: Yeah, that's a great question, I think it's a very, very important question. I mean, from the very beginning of Christianity, Jesus' resurrection was really the foundation for the ongoing belief. I mean, obviously, when Jesus was still alive, it was his miracles and his power— that made people drawn to him. But very quickly after that, it is his resurrection that becomes the focal point of Christianity. And so at the most fundamental level, the reason I believe that is because God has granted me to believe. I mean, at that deepest level, and I've come to see and taste and see that the Lord is good, and that that Lord is the one that I worship as the resurrected Son of God, Jesus. Beyond that, at the more historical level, I would say that the idea of testimony is very, very important. That why do we believe anything that happened historically? Well, it's a complex series of decisions and judgments we make based on the reliability of the witnesses, the kind of plausibility of of the effects of the event and a number of other things like that and i think all those things together combined of course again especially with the testimony of the holy spirit is that this is a very plausible explanation for the origins of christianity
0: well at this point in the program it is time for us to draw forth the infinity gauntlet as we remind you each week This is a dangerous task that Garrick dares to do by reaching within this gauntlet, which Thanos himself wore, and wiped out half of the Marvel Cinematic Universe at a particular point, which, if you have not seen the movie, we hereby let you know that was a spoiler alert.
1: So, uh, speaking of Thanos, which one would win and why? Thanos with the Infinity Stones, or... Sauron with the one ring, Thanos and the gauntlet versus Sauron and the one
0: ring. All right, this is getting old because every time Lord of the Rings shows up, Lord of the Rings wins. This has been a pattern all the way through the program thus far, Lord of the Rings never loses because I think about this and Sauron if he had obtained the one ring, I just can't imagine that there could be anything. I mean, he could he could just wink at Thanos with that eye and wipe him out. Could he? I think he could.
2: I, see, I'm going to go with, I hate to say it, but I'm going to go with with Thanos here, because what the One Ring does, it only really actually just gives him control over all the other ring bearers, right? Which means you can amass an army and you've got all the orcs and everything, but it doesn't really give him infinite power, does it? I don't think so, in the same way that you could just wipe out at the universe
0: Well, ask it level. this way, could Thanos snap and wipe out Sauron? With he's wearing well, the he does not know he, he wouldn't. I guess you it, don't know, he's got
2: a 50% chance of wiping him out. But what I'm saying though is, that, does the ring of power really give him kind of that universe, you know, universe wide power in this way that Thanos is? Yeah, like, does Thanos the do?
0: And does Thanos have any capacity to select who is wiped out and who is isn't? That's what I've wondered. Is yeah, it think Is there think so. anything that yeah. actually gives him power? over that at that point.
2: According um, to his own philosophy that he kind of says from it is that it's the fates right. of kind of like, right. just this just has to be, and it's good for society, right?
0: And if the ring
1: of power gives no immunity from the Infinity Stones, then even if Sauron isn't wiped out with the snap, half of the armies and probably Ring-rayed ring, ring and bears so, right, and ring right. rays, I think, at
2: least would be,
0: is my guess. So Sauron has to fight with one hand behind his back
2: there you go. But oh, I yeah. think he still wins with you one think hand behind so right? his back. I you know. think? <laughs> well, I guess once the once the half have been wiped out, then what is the Oh yeah, what do? can exactly. exactly. he do? Then, then I guess Sauron might then, win at the end of then the then day. Then
0: Thanos yeah. can't do anything at that point. At that now, here's the question I always have though of Lord of the Rings. Where was Sauron going to put the ring if he got it? He has no hands.
2: That is a very fair question
0: this this really bothers me a lot <laughs> yeah i've never heard of an eye ring
2: i know everything else this, could be pierced so but not so maybe much the some,
0: eye some, maybe one of our listeners can let us know this this has vexed me for many years where was sauron going to put the ring if he got it know. knows <laughs> <laughs>
1: so in the battle between the giant eye and the giant chin we are split between again i don't know where i fall on this i i i I don't think it's entirely true to say that if he snaps and Sauron isn't gone, that there's nothing else he, he can do. He does still have the powers of the Infinity Stones, does sure. he not? Yeah, he can. The Gauntlet doesn't disappear, right? He still has it. He still can do but all But it the has other done such stuff.
0: damage to him that I don't know that he can repeat that act again.
1: Yeah, I don't know. That's a tough one. That's a tough one. Well... Who knows what the true answer is, but I'm sure one of our listeners. Someone does. Dr. Pennington, (laughs) thank you for joining us and struggling with these hard truths uh, with us today.
2: My pleasure.
0: Rock and roll. It's one of the greatest inventions in human history and one of the supreme expressions of common grace. The way we see it, The golden age of this invention began with the summer of love and ended with grunge. And that's why, each week, in the second half of this program, Garrick and I review one of our favorite songs and go digging for divine truth in classic rock.
1: So today we're going to take a look at a cover song that was better than the original. But before we move on to that, I would love to think through some other cover songs that you and I would say were most definitely better than the originals. One example that comes to mind that you and I have talked about recently was Kiss's version of God Gave Rock and Roll to You, which I heard for the first time in the movie and the soundtrack, which I owned, of Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. For the longest time, was just confident that this was Kiss's song. And that no one else had ever touched this song. And then you, you ruined my life by telling me different.
0: Yeah, Kiss's version of God Gave Rock and Roll to You, certainly better than the original. But as far as I'm concerned, Johnny Cash was absolutely the master of making cover songs that were better than the originals. Just think about a few of them, Hurt that was originally by Nine Inch Nails, an excellent song by Nine Inch Nails, Johnny Cash manages to pull out a better version than the original. Uh, Rusty Cage by Soundgarden, Personal Jesus by Depeche Mode, all of these songs Johnny 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 Cash does, and he does them in a way that is better than the original song. And what I find fascinating in every one of these is that Johnny Cash finds things in that song that nobody else seems to have noticed in the original. And that, for me, is the mark of somebody who is doing a brilliant cover song, when they find things that were hidden in the original, but that no one else, even the person who wrote that song seems to have recognized were there in the original. And I think that's what Jimi Hendrix did when he remade Bob Dylan's All Along the Watchtower. And in the process of him doing that, Jimi Hendrix really created the consummate, the greatest version, I think, of that particular song. But what Jimi Hendrix did with it also inspired many, many, many other covers, of All Along the Watchtower by a lot of other bands.
1: Right, right. Well, for me, we've talked about this. I think that objectively, I can recognize that Hendrix's version is the best. But in preparation for this conversation, I I did listen to kind of four main ones, beginning with Dylan, then Hendrix, then listening to U2's version, which we'll talk about. And then having just kind of thought back through my musical journey, I remembered being introduced early on to a live version from Dave Matthews. And so I wanted to, I looked and searched that in iTunes and saw a bunch of different live versions from Dave. It shows up on a bunch of his live recordings, but one in particular, and I believe it was the 1998 kind of live in Chicago version. And so I listened to this version. It was the fourth all along the watchtower I listened to in a row in my drive home and still, even after the fourth time, I found that his version kind of evoked more raw emotion in me, got me doing more fist pumps and hitting the steering wheel more and and singing loudly, because I was by myself and it wouldn't offend anyone, than any of the others. And I found that significant and interesting and something I hadn't really realized before. So yes, Hendrix is the best, and at the same time, something about Dave, when he really gets into
0: the song, just does something in me. Yeah, we've already talked about that. It's from Isaiah, from a chapter in Isaiah. And I think that even though I like Kendrick's version best, Dave Matthews and Bob Dylan, they get – Isaiah, even if they don't know they're getting it. I think Bob Dylan did know he was getting Isaiah. I think Dave Matthews may, I don't know, but they get the Isaiah passage about this judgment. I think they really, really get that, that version of that. The funny thing is, is that Bob Dylan's version completely fails to chart. It does not chart at all, and partly probably because of the fact that it wasn't, re- that All Along the Watchtower wasn't released by Dylan as a single until after Hendrix had already released it as a single. So the person who wrote it and had recorded it already on the John Wesley Harding album, he had already recorded it. Then Jimi Hendrix records it, releases it as a single. And then Dylan later releases it as a single after Hendrix had already released it as a single. Now, it did chart for Hendrix. It was one of Hendrix's biggest hits. Yeah. Did it chart for Hendrix before? Dylan released it as a single? It it did. It charted for Hendrix before Dylan ever released it as a single. It was already on the album, but Dylan's single completely failed to chart. And so I love, absolutely love, Hendrix's version of this song. It had really in some ways completely eclipsed the original version of that. It hit number 20 on the Billboard charts. It's the top performing single of Hendrix's career. And it landed a spot on Hendrix's final studio album, which was Electric Ladyland. So Jimi Hendrix, thinking about Jimi Hendrix, an absolutely brilliant guitar player. If you look at his life, I always feel a little bit of brokenness when I look at his life. He's born in Seattle, 1942. His father was in the Army in Alabama, and it seems partially due to some racial prejudice issues. Never got to see his son as part of any paternity leave that was normally given when he had a child born. Didn't get to see his son actually until 1945. Both of his parents, alcoholics, Jimi Hendrix's parents. I think of his song, Castles Made of Sand, one of my favorite songs by Hendrix. And there's a section in there that says, down in the street you can hear her scream you're a disgrace as she slams the door in his drunken face against the door he leans and starts a scene and the tears fall and burn the garden green and I suspect that that's actually Hendrix describing something that he had actually experienced and seen all of his siblings end up in foster care jimmy mentions later he was sexually abused by a man who was in the military and when he was 13 14 years of age somewhere in there he wanted a guitar so badly and his father refused to buy him one or to help him get one that he carried a broom everywhere he went and so he would just carry this broom that he would act like was a guitar he had a teacher who actually tried to get someone to get him a guitar because she saw some potential in this young man. She wanted to help him and the uh, school system refused to help out on that, to get him one. So in 1957, everything starts to change, and it starts to change with a ukulele. (laughs) So, Because he finds a ukulele that has one string, and he starts learning to play different songs that he hears on the radio on this one-stringed ukulele. And so it's just kind of this fascinating thing of how his life comes together, and it all culminates with a ukulele he finds in the garbage, and he starts playing it. So the next year, Hendrix's
1: mother dies. His father refused to take him to the funeral, gave him some whiskey and told him that's how a man deals with death and that summer Hendrix bought his first guitar and he began playing in bands so he was left-handed, which means that he had to string right-handed guitars backwards. His father wanted him to play right hand, so he also played both ways, which I can't even play the right way, right-handed. So that just amazes
0: me. And I think that's part of why Hendrix is such an amazing player. What seems to have happened is when his dad would come in, he would flip the guitar over and start playing right-handed, but as as you said, it was strung backwards. So it was strung with the when he flipped it to be right-handed it was strung with the thinnest string on top and the thickest string on the bottom and yet he figured out how to play it that way when he was on his own he'd flip it the other way and play it in with the thicker string in the normal place towards you and the thinnest string away from you and he would learn to play that way
1: could you talk a little bit about early Hendrix kind of after this after he gets his first guitar and I guess, beginning in the early 60s.
0: Yeah, in the early 60s, at least two times, maybe more, he's caught riding around in stolen cars. And a judge tells him you can either go to the army or you can go to prison. And so he chooses the army. He joins the army. He ends up in Fort Campbell, Kentucky. So near to where we are. So we are not far from us right now. And I suspect there is no plaque there celebrating Jimi Hendrix because his time in the army was not necessarily auspicious. But we've got to remember, he was in the 101st Airborne, the Screaming Eagle. He actually earned this Screaming Eagles patch. So it's not as if there had to be something there, because they don't just hand these out freely to just anybody, but he actually earns the Screaming Eagles patch. And things go downhill for him for who knows what all the reasons are in the military. But either way, he's honorably discharged in 1962. And on his discharge papers, it simply says he's unsuitable. He moves down to Tennessee, not to Nashville at first, but though he eventually makes it to Nashville. By 1965, he's kind of caught the attention of Curtis Knight, who was a popular artist at that time. Curtis Knight and the Squires. And he's playing in Nashville with them. Who had a minor, it wasn't really a hit, but I think it's it's one of my favorite songs of the early songs from Curtis Knight and the Squires when Hendrix is playing with them. And it sounds a lot like Bob Dylan's song Like a Rolling Stone. It's it's a lot of the same chord structures of that song. But it was a song called How Would It Feel that challenged white Americans to think of how it feels to be African-American. And we start to see something that's going to be a theme we talk about several times about rock and roll as social protest and how that actually connects with, in some ways with some Christian and theological themes. But some of the words of, uh, of this song by Curtis Knight and the Squires are, if all your little children were trying to get to school, to get an education so that they could find a place in this wonderful nation, and you went downtown and people waited on you, even though you knew they didn't want to, and everywhere you looked around, all you could see was hate in people's eyes, and you tried to love them. How would you feel if you were me? So he ends up moving to London. 1968, he moves to 23 Brook Street, which is fascinating because George Frederick Handel in the 18th century lived in at 25 Brook Street, right next door. In the summer of 2013, we actually spent that summer in London and, and stayed in an apartment that was about two streets over from this. And so every day when I walked to the coffee shop, I walked past the end of the street that George Frederick Handel and Jimi Hendrix had both lived on this particular street, which was was really cool. So he ends up in the Jimi hendrix experience and he had always been a fan all this time of bob dylan hendrix was a major bob dylan fan he recorded like rolling stone he recorded a cover of can you please crawl out your window drifters escape tears of rage so him recording a dylan song is not something unique or different he even and this is kind of the pinnacle of it as far as i'm concerned he broke up with a girlfriend using a dylan song and so it was most likely you go your way and i go mine so that's he breaks up with his girlfriend well he He listens to Dylan's John Wesley Harding album, and the first song he wanted to cover, which would have been so amazing if he had, was I Dreamed I Saw St. Augustine. So he he tries this dream, I Dreamed I Saw St. Augustine, and he decides he can't quite do that one, and so he ends up landing on All Along the Watchtower instead. And so he records that, and as we've already talked about, that version he records so much better than the original version. I mean, Dylan's version is great, it really is, but Hendrix's version is just powerful. It's a really simple song, but what he does with it is absolutely amazing. Must be some kind of way out of here Said a to the thief. There's too much confusion.
1: And even even Dylan thinks so. Mm-hmm. right? You say it's a simple song, meaning that it's a simple three chord song, right? The, the minor sixth, the major fifth, and major fourth. It started as a six
0: string acoustic right? Mm-hmm. A, a 12 he string. Adds, keeps adding on. There's a- like 30 or 40 different levels of takes that he does on this uh, or like the different things he was trying and ping-ponging tracks together, everything like that. All of this fits
1: Bob Dylan's apocalyptic vision better than Dylan's version.
0: Right. And as we've talked about, Dylan actually from 1970 on does Hendrix's version. And he does it in part as sort of a tribute. Remember Hendrix of course dying in in 1970, so from that point forward Bob Dylan and he says about it that Hendrix found things in the song that he himself couldn't find in that song and that nobody else could have found. It's like he finds and and rhythmically it's different than Dylan's version. So Dylan's version is more of a strummed easy easy thing, but Hendrix doesn't even start on the same part of the chord structure. Instead of starting on the minor chord, he starts on the major fifth and then goes up to the to the minor chord that's kind of the dominant chord of the song. And so he's, he's in his timing, his timing is different on it. Everything is different. He finds things as if he plays in the cracks, which is a lot of what Hendrix often does. Whenever I listen to Jimi Hendrix's version of All Along the Watchtower, back to back with Bob Dylan's version, I come away recognizing and thinking that there were things that were there. They were present. They were there in Bob Dylan's original version of this song that I don't think anyone would have ever noticed. Even Dylan himself, apart from Jimi Hendrix's cover, of this particular song, and here's what I find fascinating when I think about cover songs and think about this particular one, try to think about it from a theological point of view. In some ways, there's a really great analogy here between the way a later artist may find something in a song that the original artist didn't see. And the ways that the authors of the New Testament used the Old Testament. And let, let me explain what I mean by that, by looking just at a difficulty in the very first chapter of the New Testament. There's an issue that we face when interpreting the New Testament that we can see as early as the first chapter in the New Testament. Toward the end of Matthew chapter one, it says, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And of course, he's quoting there from Isaiah 7, 14. But if you look closely at Isaiah chapter seven and verse 14, you find that the Greek word for virgin in the Greek Old Testament that the author of Matthew was using translates a Hebrew word that can actually mean either virgin or simply a young woman. And furthermore, it seems like this text is at least partly fulfilled in Isaiah through the birth of a son in the very next chapter of Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 8, and the son's name was Maher Shalal Hashbaz, which just as a sidelight, just does not get enough usage in the Christian community as a name for our children. It just doesn't appear in very many baby name lists in the nursery. I'm not sure why. But all of this raises an uncomfortable question. It's why is it legitimate for Matthew to connect Isaiah's prophecy to the virgin conception of Jesus. And this isn't the only example like this in the New Testament. It's the first of hundreds of examples like this. Well, New Testament scholars, including Douglas Moo and others, have proposed what they call a canonical approach that I I think it's compelling. And according to a canonical approach, there can be meanings that were present in the original text in the Old Testament that the original author may not have clearly envisioned. But these meanings then become clear later when seen in terms of the whole biblical canon fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And when we look at Matthew chapter 1 in this way, we see that yes, Isaiah 7.14 was partly fulfilled through the birth of Maharshala al-Hashbaz. But at the same time, When we look at the text of Isaiah and at the canon of Scripture as a whole, we see that Isaiah's words allow for far more than merely this prophecy of the birth of his own son. And so Matthew rightly recognizes that there has been a greater fulfillment than Isaiah probably even knew in Jesus Christ, in which a woman is not merely a young woman, but she is a virgin, and the child is not merely a sign of God's judgment as he was in Isaiah, but The child is God himself who will take the judgment for our sins. And when I teach about how to read the Old and New Testaments in this way, I use cover songs by Jimi Hendrix and Johnny Cash as examples because both Hendrix and Cash, they caused the songs that they covered to mean more than they did before. And yet their covers are still true to the originals. You can still recognize the original song from their cover versions, but they find things In those songs that even the original artist didn't clearly see. And there are things that were in Isaiah's words that the author of Matthew's gospel saw because he was seeing things from the broader perspective of God's fulfillment of his promises in Christ. Similar to, likewise, There were things in the song Hurt by Nine Inch Nails that Johnny Cash was able to find that Trent Reznor couldn't because of the broader perspective that flows out of Johnny Cash's life from decades of his struggles with drugs and alcohol and his victory through Jesus. And in the same way, in the song we're looking at today, Jimi Hendrix heard things in Bob Dylan's All Along the Watchtower that Dylan couldn't see in his own song. It's the same song, same general chord structure, same lyrics, but Jimi Hendrix was simultaneously true to the original text, true to the original song, and yet saw something more in it, just like Matthew when he read Isaiah. And for Jimi Hendrix, that was at least in part because of his broader experiences. Hendrix heard the the apocalyptic imagery in the song from the perspective of a paratrooper who would have ended up in Vietnam if he hadn't been discharged from the army. He heard the themes of injustice as someone who had experienced sexual abuse and as an African American living in the shadow of Jim Crow. And that broader perspective that Jimi Hendrix brought to the song, it enabled him to create a cover song that saw more in a song that Bob Dylan wrote than Bob Dylan could ever have seen himself in that song. Thank you for joining us today. If you want to connect with the two of us, check out threechordsapologetics.com. That's chords with an H, the kind you play, not the kind you plug. If you're interested in choosing one of the songs we review in the future, or in picking up Three Chords and the Truth merchandise, go to patreon.com slash threechordsandthetruth. My name is Timothy Paul Jones, and I'm already looking forward to joining you next time on Three Chords and the Truth.